This is an extra mini episode of Medieval Death Trip for September 14th, 2022. So, on September 8th, a few days ago as I record this, Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96, and now we are seeing the stages in the funeral process proceed alongside the coronation of the new king. This is a significant event in British regal history that I felt this show should acknowledge in some way, but I wasn't sure what kind of content would be appropriate uh, for the occasion and for uh, all the different emotions uh, out there. So what I've selected is an account of the death of Queen Elizabeth I, which I hope offers us a little historical perspective on a royal death that's interesting without being too morbid or grotesque. It is a fairly naturalistic portrait of a 69-year-old woman passing away rather quietly of natural causes, uh, exacerbated perhaps by depression, but otherwise not particularly unusual or dramatic, uh, especially for the time period. The unusual thing here is just the elevated political status of the person going through this death experience. But I hope this little story might offer something to reflect on as we consider the death of Elizabeth II, an event both unexpectedly sudden, but also not really surprising in the larger scheme of things. Our source is an 18th century book with the wonderfully verbose 18th century title, Memoirs of the Reign of Queen Elizabeth from the year 1581 till her death, in which the secret intrigues of her court and the conduct of her favorite, Robert Earl of Essex, both at home and abroad, are particularly illustrated from the original papers of Anthony Bacon, Esquire, and other manuscripts never before published. Period. This two-volume tome was written by Thomas Birch and published in 1754. Birch seems to have been an interesting character, someone who was respected and praised for his intellect by contemporaries like Samuel Johnson, but whose wittiness apparently didn't carry over into his writing style, as also remarked on by his contemporaries. He was a member of the Royal Society and keeper of the books at the British Museum. Also, according to Wikipedia, in a statement lacking citation, he was an avid fisherman who disguised himself as a tree with his arms made to look like branches in order to avoid spooking the fish. I have one other little light introductory digression before we get to the more somber material. As I read Birch's text, which is based heavily on letters to King Henry IV of France from the French ambassador at Elizabeth's court, we're going to see an issue with the dates in the text, which reflects what, for Birch, was a recent change in the British Empire. The Calendar New Style Act 1750 introduced two major changes to how the British Empire marked dates. First, it dropped the Julian calendar and adopted the Gregorian calendar. The Julian calendar, instituted by Julius Caesar in 45 BCE, had a simple leap year rule that just added a leap year every fourth year, but that's actually a bit too frequently to be adding in an extra day, and the Julian year began to run ahead of the solar year. That's why the Gregorian calendar, proposed in 1582 by Pope Gregory VIII, changed the leap day calculation to skip leap years divisible by 100, uh, unless they're also divisible by 400. And that gets us to a calendar year that still drifts a little bit from the solar year, but only a little bit. 
by 1750, the Julian calendar was 11 days out of sync with the Gregorian calendar, uh, which had been adopted nearly 200 years earlier by most of the Catholic countries in Europe. And so Britain's Calendar Act had to erase that 11-day difference to get Britain aligned with the rest of Europe. So they just skipped 11 days in September. Britons went to bed on Wednesday, September 2nd, 1752, and woke up on Thursday, September 14th, 1752. Think of the fuss people still kick up about daylight saving time today, and now picture losing 11 days, maybe even your birthday. There actually was a bit of a to-do about the stolen 11 days, mainly as a topic of political cartoons, and tales passed down of calendar riots seem to be largely invented. The legend of the stolen September days is also the basis for one of my favorite bizarre episodes in Thomas Pynchon's novel, Mason and Dixon, which is a book I highly recommend, though it is very much not going to be to everyone's tastes. Anyway, the other big change of the Calendar Act affected the official start of the year. It was moved from March 25th to January 1st. We discussed the different traditional dates for starting years back in episode 21, A New Year's Chimera, so if you want more detail on that issue, you can go and find that episode in our back catalog. The result of these changes is that the dates given in Birch's sources, of course, don't match the new reformed calendar. So, in his text, he gives us both years, marking the second with the abbreviation NS for New Style. Uh, so that's why the dates in this book from 1754 are a bit unusual. And with that explanation out of the way, let's get to the text. I'm not going to give you a full rundown on the final years of Elizabeth's reign. There's plenty of good sources out there on Elizabeth. I'll just say that this picks up in 1602, New Style a year after the execution of Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, and a former favorite of the Queen, for treason. So, here is Thomas Birch's account of the death of Elizabeth I, as detailed in contemporary letters. The music is a pair of selections. The first comes from 1754, the publication year of Birch's book, and is a voluntary by John Stanley, performed here by Michel Rondeau in an arrangement for organ and trumpet. The second goes back in time to the year following Elizabeth's death, 1604, when John Dowland published his Lacrimae, or Seven Tears, from which we will hear the piece Lacrimae Verae, or True Tears, performed by E. Solipsisti. Both recordings are being used per Creative Commons attribution license and can be found in their original form at museopen.org. But in the beginning of June the year following, Her Majesty, in a conversation with Count de Beaumont, successor to Monsignor de Boisis as ambassador to her from France, after owning herself to be weary of life, with sighs and tears in her eyes, touched upon the subject of the Earl's death, and said that having been apprehensive from the impetuosity of his temper and his ambition that he would precipitate himself into destruction by some ill design, she had advised him above two years before to content himself with pleasing her on all occasions, and not to show such an insolent contempt for her as he did, but to take care not to touch her scepter, lest she should be obliged to punish him according to the laws of England, and not according to her own, which she had found too mild and favorable for him to fear any suffering from them, but that her advices, however salutary and affectionate, 
could not prevent his ruin. The impression of melancholy which the Earl's death made upon Her Majesty some time before her own, as related in another work, receives new confirmation by the following passage in a letter to a Scots nobleman in the King's confidence from a correspondent of his in England. Quote, Our Queen is troubled with a room in her arm, which vexeth her very much, besides the grief she hath conceived for my Lord of Essex's death. She sleepeth not so much by day as she used, neither taketh rest by night. Her delight is to sit in the dark, and sometimes with shedding tears to bewail Essex. End quote. But the circumstance of her last illness will be best described from the manuscript letters of the French ambassador. In that of the 13th of March, 1602, or 3, new style, to Monsignor de Villeroy, he observes that having received on the 8th the French king's letter of the 26th of February, and immediately requested an audience of the queen, she had desired to be excused for some days on account of the death of the Countess of Nottingham, for which she had wept extremely and shown an uncommon concern. On the 19th of March, New Style, he wrote to the king that she had been very much indisposed for fourteen days past, having slept scarce at all during that time, and ate much less than usual, being seized with such a restlessness that though she had no formed fever, she felt a great heat in her stomach, and a continual thirst which obliged her every moment to take something to abate it, and to prevent the hard and dry phlegm with which she was sometimes oppressed from choking her. Some ascribed her disorder to her uneasiness with regard to Lady Arabella Stuart, others to her having been in a manner forced by the council to grant a pardon to Tyrone. Many were of opinion that the distress of mind was occasioned by the death of the Earl of Essex, but all agreed that before her illness grew considerable, she discovered an unusual melancholy, both in her countenance and behavior. She had been obstinate in refusing everything prescribed by her physicians during her sickness. In this letter, the ambassador remarked that he thought that the succession of the King of Scots would meet with no difficulty. But what opinion Henry IV had of that king appears from a letter of his to Monsignor de Beaumont of the 13th of March, New Style, in answer to one of that ambassador of February 22nd, New Style, who had informed him of the embroiling and sanguinary temper of the Queen of Scots and the danger to which her husband's life was exposed from her ambition to govern during the minority of her eldest son. The French king, in his answer, declares himself of the same opinion with his ambassador, that the situation of King James deserved great consideration, for if it were true that his queen had sworn his death, it would be difficult for him to escape it, unless by preventing her. He then observes, with regard to that king's character and conduct, that he showed so much levity and inconsiderateness in the whole of it, that no solid foundation could be laid upon his words and actions. Quote, He practices, adds Henry IV, at Rome, in Spain, and everywhere else, as he doth with me, without attaching himself to any, either openly or secretly, and is easily moved and carried away by the first hopes raised in him by those about him, without the least regard to merit or truth. So that I foresee that he will suffer himself to be surprised on all occasions. End quote. The ambassador, on the 22nd of March, New Style, wrote that the Queen of England had been the day before much better, but was that day worse, and so full of chagrin, and so weary of life, that notwithstanding all the importunities of her counselors and physicians to consent to the use of proper remedies for her relief, she would not take one. 
In his letter of the 24th of March, New Style, he informs the king that three days before she was thought to be dead, but the day following began to grow better and to repose herself, and since the 15th had lain in her bed. Her principal courtiers, particularly the Archbishop of Canterbury and Secretary Cecil, entreated her to receive help, but she was angry with them for it, and said that she knew her own strength and constitution better than they, and that she was not in so much danger as they imagined. The ambassador wrote again to his master on the 28th of March, New Style, that the queen continued to grow worse and appeared already in a manner insensible, not speaking sometimes for two or three hours, and within the last two days, not for above four and twenty, holding her finger almost continually in her mouth, with her eyes open and fixed upon the ground, where she sat upon cushions without rising or resting herself, and was greatly emaciated by her long watching and fasting. In his next letter of the 1st of April, New Style, he informs Monsignor Villeroy that the Queen was drawing to her end, and had been abandoned the day before by all her physicians, but was now forced in a manner into bed, after having sat ten days upon cushions, refusing to repose herself on it except for one hour, and that in her clothes. She seemed once to be so much better, calling for broth, that those about her entertained some hopes of her, but soon after began to lose her speech, and from that time at nothing, but lay on one side on the day of the date of this letter, without speaking or looking upon any person, though the day before she had directed some meditations to be read to her, and among others, those of Monsignor Duplessis. On the 5th of April, New Style, the French ambassador acquainted Henry IV with the death of the Queen, two days before, who expired very easily at three in the morning, having begun to grow speechless the day before, and slept for five hours before she resigned her breath, upon which her council and servants proclaimed her successor, King James, at Richmond, as they did at London at ten that morning. Her Majesty, some days before her death, having declared to the Earl of Nottingham, Lord Admiral, and Secretary Cecil, that she acknowledged no other successor than that king, and did not desire that her kingdom should fall into the hands of rascals, which was her own word, and afterwards, when her speech failed her, and they requested her in the presence of others of the council to confirm what she had said to them, she put her hand to her head to show her approbation of it. And from there, we're on into the issue of succession. So thus passed Elizabeth I. Another event that I think people weren't quite prepared for, but also weren't surprised by. We'll be back next time with another regular episode. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.